Friends, please take your Bibles and open to the book of Acts, the book of Acts chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, and um, we, we have some we'd love for you to take, so just raise your hand. John's at the back. He would love to bring you a copy of the Scriptures. You just got to keep your hand up for a moment. Uh, please don't feel any shame in that. It would be our delight for you to have a copy of the Scriptures. He's running to get some, so just keep your hands up for a minute. Um, we, we love people to have the Bible because uh, in the Bible, God has spoken to mankind. And so you will find in this book everything you know in order to lead a life pleasing to God. So just raise your hands where you are. Here comes Satch with some Bibles. We're in Acts chapter 17, which I think I have a page number for you somewhere, but I can't find it. In one of our church Bibles, that's on page 871, 871. So we'll be reading from the book of Acts, which is a book out of the New Testament. Your Bible has an Old and a New Testament, uh, the, the way God works in covenant with his people. And this book of Acts is the story of the church just as it's starting, after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus to heaven. Now the church is beginning to spread as people tell the good news about the Lord Jesus. So if you find the big number 17 on page 871 or whatever that was, uh, that's the chapter, and the small numbers that follow are the verse markings. You listen as I read. This is what Holy Scripture says. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and arise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, those Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. 
Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm blessed to already know some of you, at least a little bit. Uh, Well, first of all, let me say how grateful I am that you took Samuel in and you have loved him and shown him grace and compassion and the Lord will use you to repair all the things I broke in my son in his nurturing years. Uh, We're so grateful Sam has found a home here and uh, he's brought some of you to our place. Some of you in his circle of friends have been to my house and eaten my food and messed up my place and uh, that's been sweet and you have blessed my family, my dad especially, you've been a blessing to us already, worshipped in our home with some of you and uh, just grateful for all of those amazing uh, gifts and as Paul said, it is uh, increasingly vital to us as pastors get old uh, to see uh, Faithful pastors in ministry, I thank God for Paul and, his, and your shepherding team here and the faithfulness to the gospel and the blessing of God on that, the fruit of that that I get to just share in just a little bit this morning. Uh, God is good, and I'm grateful and encouraged uh, by the work that he's doing in this place uh, and the fellowship we have together with Jesus. Let me just express directly greetings from your brothers and sisters at Port Perry Baptist Church. Uh, They were, and you can take this any way you want, they were glad to see me go, Uh, and uh, grateful for the ministry happening under the leadership of our church family there this morning, but uh, it is good, even though they don't know you and you don't know them, uh, one day we will worship together around the throne. We will know each other then, and uh, just these connections and opportunities are a sweet blessing in advance of that, that moment. I want to spend a little bit of time with you in this passage. We're just going to look at the first 10 verses of Acts 17. That's basically where we've been in our church family. We've been walking with Paul and the apostles through the book of Acts and their missionary adventures. Um, All that you see and experience uh, and and, uh, come alongside in the activities and ministries and mission of the apostles. It, It explodes out of the truth of the gospel and then you see them taking that commission from Christ. You'll be my witnesses uh, in Jerusalem, Judea, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And you see that unfolding. It's impossible, I think, to read thoughtfully, carefully, study thoughtfully through the book of Acts and not be struck by the importance of Christian witness. I mean, basically, that's what's happening, right? By the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, they bear witness to the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's, that's really where we've been reflecting as a church family. I just want to share some of what we've been feeding on and challenge you to think about your witness and how God is using you today, given His work of grace in your heart and life and hopefully learn some things, pick up some things from Paul's example here in Thessalonica. Before I do that, uh, let's just bow again in a word of prayer. Father, I am um, just overwhelmingly blessed in this moment already to have shared in uh, the rich reward of your presence, your ministry by the Spirit to my own heart, as your people have loved you and worshipped you together this morning. Uh, Thank you that I can be here with this bunch. 
Thank you, Father, that you are here now in this moment. And I would ask for your help, even as we've acknowledged. I I feel compelled to acknowledge my own weakness and sin, Father. Forgive my heart, my mind, all the weakness in me that might impede the ministry of the word to the hearts of your people. Will you please forgive and enable that you would be at work in the hearts and minds of these people here today, your children. They're your sheep, Father. You know their needs. You alone know what what it is in your word in this passage is going to be most useful to their hearts and life and faith and witness for Jesus. Father, I just trust everything now, your word, this moment, these people, my own heart, I trust it all into your hands, and I pray for more grace for our good and for your glory. I ask these things in Jesus' name. One other word of explanation. I hope I'm okay. I'm this close to preaching, so I don't think Paul... I, are, you, are, are you an ESV bunch, mostly? How many have ESVs? Does anybody have the nearly inspired version like I do? That's what one of my friends calls it, the NIV. Well, that's the text I've got, but Paul's already read it in the ESV, and I think most of, I've, I've compared, most of the terminology is pretty close. You won't notice any great differences if, if uh, I'm using the NIV and you're using the ESV this morning. Years ago, um, as a young boy, when hockey was the most important thing in my life, my friends and I, we would play, maybe on an organized team, uh, maybe just out on a pond, uh, maybe in the street, uh, at school, at home. Uh, we didn't have all of the distractions of technology that you young people have today, so we, we got our hockey sticks and pucks and balls, and we played hockey. And when we were playing hockey, whether it was on ice or on a street, wherever it was, in our minds we were, we were Gee and Bobby. Do those names my generation recognize? Maybe Daryl and Lanny for some of you poor Leafs fans. Um, we imagined ourselves being uh, our hockey heroes. And I think in some ways imagined that we were just this close, right, to being as good as them, to, to making it to the NHL. The truth of the matter was, we were not. Years, years later, as a young man playing church league hockey in Ottawa, somebody videotaped our team. It crushed me. <laughs> I sold my equipment. I abandoned. We were terrible. I was terrible. But I could skate a little bit. I could pass a little bit. I shoot a bit. And I'll tell you this much. I really enjoyed playing hockey. Uh, it was a joy to play the game. I couldn't play it as well as some other people, but I could play, and I had great joy in that. What's that story all about? How does that help us thinking about Paul and witness, yours and mine? It is important when tracking with the Apostle Paul and the other apostles through the book of Acts, it's important to be reminded that we're not them, that in many respects, the things we read about them, the things they do and say, they're quite unique. Paul, Peter, James, John, they are uniquely called, uniquely equipped, uniquely positioned here at the very beginning days, the exploding days of the the church beginnings. They're operating in many respects in unique ways. So what I don't want you to think is, as we reflect on what Paul is doing here by way of witness and evangelism, that the application is you have to be Paul. You're not Paul. Not even Paul is Paul. We're, We're not called to be the apostles. But having said that, 
we do follow in their steps. We are, like them, disciples of Jesus. And whatever else that means, that means we bear witness to Jesus. Who we are, what we have, where he puts us, gifts, heart, friends, family. We are, we share the same spiritual DNA. Thus, in the words of Jesus, we are, by the very nature of what it means to be a Christian, salt and light. That witness isn't an optional extra in the Christian experience. Witness is the necessary consequence of knowing and loving Jesus. But we need help. I do. I don't know how you feel about your Christian witness today how successful and effective, how often you feel you're engaged in actually bringing the gospel to someone who doesn't know the gospel. Maybe you feel afraid or fear or uh, anxious or uh, frustrated, or maybe you had some moments this week and like so many, you missed the moment or avoided the moment or hid in the moment. Maybe you're feeling discouraged. Maybe you're living on a mountaintop. The Lord just opened ways for you to, to minister the gospel into the lives of people around you. That's great. I got to confess, at least back in Port Perry, you guys are much more spiritual than us, but back where we are, it feels really hard these days in so many ways. Partially because of our own weakness, my own weakness and failures and sin. Partially because we do live in a world and in a culture, and it feels unique and special and new. It's not. This world always resists the light. And so bringing the gospel to the lost, uh, our culture is predisposed to canceling your Christian witness, your Christian faith. It's disqualified at the way into the philosophical discussion these days. Again, be encouraged. That's always been the case. Paul runs into the same problem. But that does unnerve us a little bit. It causes us to shrink back maybe. And we minister into a culture which, quite frankly, is so ignorant of the Bible, it's a wonder they can even understand it when we're talking about Christianity at all. Others more knowledgeable on stats and shifts in culture than I am have said that 50 years ago, you could bump into people on the street, and even though they were unbelievers, the God they didn't believe in was the God of the Bible. They they understood some basics. People went to Sunday school as cultural reality. And so, well, that's just not the case today, is that? So all of these things pile up, stack up against us. And yet, I want to encourage you on the way in that because because Jesus has, has rescued you, if you're a believer, if you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, and maybe I should pause there for a moment. You've heard the gospel presented in prayer, in scripture, from Pastor Paul, in song. You've been confronted with the truth of the gospel already this morning. But maybe before I start pressing issues of witness, there's no, there's no benefit in thinking about being a witness for Jesus unless you've been saved by Jesus. There's no bearing witness to the truth and power of the gospel until you have experienced the truth and power of the gospel. And this is where my ignorance of you people comes in handy. I don't know you. I don't know where you stand with the Lord. I trust from your worship most of you are walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. But who of you are sitting here today and you're still on the outside looking in? 
You're still either consciously or unconsciously resisting all of those thoughts that were planted earlier in the service about sin and brokenness and lostness, about being born into the world, coming into the world. You and I come into this world predisposed to rebel against God. We, we don't want Him telling us how to live our lives. I'll do that on my own, thank you very much. I'll be the captain of my own soul. That even at the youngest of ages, even from conception, that's the heart we're born with. It's defective. It is cut off from the life of God, and it is bent on rebellion against God. And I suspect there are some here this morning who are still living in that place of rebellion and lifelessness and hopelessness. And I want to encourage you to reflect on what you've heard and what we've sung and what we've read from Scripture, and we'll come back to some things. Just know this, the eternal Son of God became a human being and lived a sinless life, and He died as a sacrificial substitutionary death on a cross outside of Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago that He might take the sin and the guilt that separates you from His Father, that He might take that into Himself. And bear away the the sin, the guilt of all of his people through all of time. He is, is, Jesus is that glorious Savior who is the only answer to the ache of your heart and soul this morning. You seek to satisfy that ache, to massage that ache, to fill that emptiness with everything else you can find in the world. And you keep filling your hands and your heart with all of this stuff. And when you look down, they're empty. And Jesus is the one, because of who he is and what he did in his life and his death and in his powerful resurrection, he is the one who can fill your heart and your hands with, as we sang, with his goodness. Forgiveness and life come through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So before I talk about witness, I just want to ask this question. Do you know Jesus this morning? My dad does. He said, amen. Does anybody in this place know Jesus this morning? Amen. Yeah. If you don't, I would encourage you. That's the most important thing you need to think about in this moment. Feel free to stop listening to me and start talking with Jesus because you need him most of all. You cry out to him, he will hear you, and he will respond. You cry out to me even this moment. If you've got questions about that, if you don't know what this crazy guy from Port Perry is talking about, Pastor Paul will make sense of it all after service. He'll be glad to talk with you more. For all of you who either quietly or verbally said, Amen, I know and love Jesus, I'm a forgiven person, let's think for just a couple of minutes about witness. And what it means for us to bear witness for Jesus in our day, even as Paul and the apostles and all those gathered around them and the churches they left behind as they bear witness to Jesus and the truth and power of the gospel in their day. We pick up in Acts 17, Paul entering Thessalonica. It's a pretty large city, prominent city, about 100,000 people, large Jewish population. It's uh, in the kind of what would now be northern Greece. And they've come there from from, uh, Philippi. Philippi, if you read chapter 16, great blessings in ministry. And then they get into great trouble with the authorities, beaten, imprisoned, and then booted out of Philippi. And they find their way to Thessalonica. They head there for their next round of ministry. And I just want you to think with me. I'll give you the three headings if you're a note taker here in a moment. I want you to think about how it is Paul approaches his evangelistic ministry and witness here in Thessalonica. A word of caution, 
I, we have been studying these things together, piling them one on top of the other, and that's the best way to study them. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and then on to Athens. It's good to see all of them interconnected. We're not going to get there today, uh, but that's, there's, a, there's a large picture of which we're just getting a small glimpse this morning from Thessalonica. How does Paul, here in this moment, at this time, in Thessalonica, bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, and how can it be helpful to us? Three things. We're going to think about his method in ministry, then we're going to think about the message in ministry, and then we're going to reflect on the impact of that ministry. And quite frankly, those three points could be repeated for several different sections in the book of Acts, but I think that's the best way we can get to some stuff that hopefully will help you and I as we think about our witness for Jesus. We're told in verses 1 and 2, first of all, under the method that on three consecutive Sabbath days, that Saturday, they go to the synagogue for times of worship and study. And Paul, which is Paul's normal approach, though already he's begun to see that the Jews are not welcoming and he's headed towards Gentile ministry primarily. He still, as a rule, at this point, his second missionary journey, he arrives in a new place. If there's a synagogue, that's where he goes and he brings the gospel to his Jewish compatriots. It's his starting point. And Luke here records, he gives such a brief description of the ministry that takes place, but it's very powerful, it's very significant. He packs four descriptive words into uh, this, uh, uh, this picture of Paul's ministry. He says that Paul would go to the synagogue these three Sabbath days, and no doubt speaking in between, it's not just on the Sabbath he's ministering, but primarily to the Jewish community on the Sabbath. He reasons with them from scriptures. That's the end of verse 2. He explains and proves that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. And then in Paul's own words, Luke quoting Paul, and this Jesus I proclaim to you is the Messiah. I just want you to see those words that that Luke packs in together to help us understand what is Paul doing. He's reasoning from scripture. That is, he's instructing, but it's, that word actually is a, it's not just uh, preaching, although there was much preaching in Paul's ministry. Uh, there would have been dialogue, Q&A. It's likely that in the synagogue uh, he would have, I understand it's a practice here, there would have been a message and then some question and answer afterwards, allowing people to engage and pulling them into what it was he was trying. He, that's, that's his reasoning, explaining And it could be that explaining and proving is describing the reasoning, or it could be three different ways of describing Paul's preaching. It really doesn't matter. I think you end up in the same place. Paul reasons with them from the Scripture. He instructs. He pulls them into the truth of the gospel. He explains. He opens up the Scripture. He opens up the gospel. He unpacks it and draws lines of connection from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from from the uh, tabernacle to Jesus in all sorts of wonderful ways, no doubt. I wonder at this moment why why Luke couldn't put in a footnote and describe, give us a list of passages. What were those sermons outlines that we don't know? But we know that he was explaining, opening, unpacking. He was proving. That word brings up our word apologetics, right? He was giving evidence or proofs. Again, and it's important to see this, I won't have time to really unpack this at length, but it is important to see here in Thessalonica and elsewhere in Acts that he's using Scripture. Paul's using the Old Testament, 
And that's, he's proving from the Old Testament, giving evidence from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. But that Old Testament evidence is wedded to what we would call New Testament evidence. It's just not written down yet. The apostolic witness at this point in time is equally authoritative as the Old Testament. And, and that's what Paul's doing. He's, he's giving evidence both from the Old Testament scriptures themselves for his Jewish audience, and he's giving proof and evidence from what the apostles have seen and heard from Jesus himself, that both of those things would be part of the proving. And then Paul's description, which Luke adds in, this Jesus I proclaim to you is that Messiah. He declares, it's proclaiming, it's, it really reflects whatever else we might make of, of reasoning and uh, what was the next one, explaining, proving. The proclaiming really expresses the authority with which Paul comes to the moment and his message. I'm declaring something to you. You need to hear this. This comes with authority. All of those words reflect the intensity and the passion, and I would argue the intellectual seriousness and precision of Paul's ministry of the gospel to the hearts and minds and souls of whoever it is he is with. In this moment, it's a uniquely Jewish audience, so we see him unpacking Old Testament Scripture the way that Peter did in Acts 2, and, and even Philip in, in Acts 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch with Isaiah 53. Here we're not told precisely what passages he uses, but with intellectual seriousness and precision, with intensity and passion, Paul is bringing the truth of the gospel from what we would describe as Genesis to Revelation. He's bringing that truth to the minds and hearts of his hearers. But I wonder what this looked like. And while there's not a lot of detail here in Acts, I want to suggest to you, and I would encourage you to read this later on this afternoon when you're napping or something, or maybe after your nap, I guess. Um, if you can nap and read the Bible at the same time, man, you are, that's pretty gifted. What, what did this look The best commentary on what's happening here is Paul's letters to the church in Thessalonica, uh, letters one and two, right? They're in your Bible as well. So let, let me, I want to, I want to, I guess, frame or picture uh, those words that we just reflected on, Luke's description, and then pick up some of what Paul says about what's happening in this moment, and just get a sense of what, what does this really look like and feel like? What, what's his ministry like? Four things. One, it's courageous, or you might say bold. And if you go back into Acts 16, the end of Acts 16, you realize they were, they were badly treated and booted out of Philippi while God blessed the gospel and planted a church. Paul and Silas are booted out, and they arrive in Thessalonica, and what do they do? They go to work. They just go to work. They just take the gospel to the next town, to the next place, to the next moment. Listen to how Paul describes what's happening here as he arrives in Thessalonica. This is 1 Thessalonians 2. And if you want this whole passage, it's basically 2, 1, 2, about 13. I'm just going to read some samples for you. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 and 2. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. What Paul's doing, the, the way that Luke describes it in Acts 17 there, reasoning, explaining, proving, proclaiming, 
what we have to understand is it's not easy that Paul has come from a hard moment. I don't know if you've ever been beaten and thrown in an ancient prison, uh, but I understand it wasn't pleasant. He, that, that was the response of the larger community to his ministry. He now sh- shows up in the next place. I don't know. I've been signing up for a sabbatical myself, right? Like, it takes a measure of courage and boldness to say, new crowd, let's go. And that's what he does. That's what he describes himself in 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2. The second, his ministry is courageous. His ministry is earnest. I've already said this, I guess, but let me say it again and, and read a quote from Paul. What I mean by earnest is the energy and effort, the time. He is fully engaged. Those four terms reflect a man who is really pouring himself into the moment and the message and the people. He's fully engaged. He describes it this way in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 and 10. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we, while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Paul there is describing certainly his ongoing ministry after people start coming to faith in Jesus, but it also reflects his initial ministry, that it is with great intensity of effort and energy he gives himself to the bearing witness of the gospel to this new community and to those gathered before him. Third, his ministry is gracious. It's marked by compassion and gentleness And this I take from Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 11 and 12. Again, describing his arrival in ministry to the people in Acts 17, he says this, For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. I think that description, again, reflects his ongoing ministry after they start coming to faith in Jesus, but it's a quality of Paul's ministry from beginning to end, that he, he deals with them in love and in grace as he reasons and explains and proves and proclaims the message of Jesus. His ministry is marked by grace. And finally, and this is certainly crucial and, it, and obvious back in Acts, 17, he's biblical. He's reasoning with them. He's explaining to them. He's proving to them, proclaiming to them from the foundation, from the the root source, the Word of God itself. Old Testament, and as I mentioned before, apostolic witness truth. Listen to how he describes this their reception of his ministry, his spoken ministry in 1 Thessalonians 2:13. We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. I think that little verse is a very important verse for us to understand how even the Apostle Paul is self-consciously aware that his writing and ministry is uniquely inspired by the Spirit of God. He's not just describing the, the Old Testament as the Word of God. That was understood. 
He's describing all that was communicated from him as the Word of God. And they received the message from Paul, not as human words, not as his own ideas, but as the very Word of God itself. He communicates the truth about Jesus from the foundation and out of the fountainhead of God's revelation, both Old Testament and in that moment, miraculously, spiritually inspired New Testament. Well, what do we do with all that? Let me just make this comment and then uh, quickly, as quickly as I can, just touch on the message here, what he actually is saying. Do you see how seriously Paul takes this mission he is on? How earnest and thoughtful and passionate, how determined he is to communicate the truth of the gospel with clarity and urgency. Both Acts 17, those verses, and his own commentary reflect a heart that sees the urgency of the moment. There is no time to waste. We too should be reminded that there is an urgency to the moment. An urgency for clear gospel communication. Clear, careful, gracious, passionate, earnest gospel communication. In some respects, we must see ourselves as living out the last days. Now, I don't know if Jesus is coming tomorrow or a thousand years from tomorrow. And I want to speak to Paul about his understanding of the rapture. I'm not sure where that's coming from. But anyhow, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. But everywhere in the New Testament, we are pressed with this reality. We are to understand that being ready, watchful, ready for the return of Christ is being earnest in our growth, in our passionate pursuit of him, in our faith and following of him. And at the heart of that faith and following of Jesus is a faithful witness for Jesus. And I have to ask myself as I get to, you know, reflecting on this description of Paul's ministry, again, not that I need to be Paul, but do any of these qualities reflect my heart, not just my heart, my actual activity when it comes to communicating with people about the Lord Jesus Christ? And I'm not talking about what I'm doing in this moment, although it it does relate to that. I'm talking about what I'm going to do tomorrow morning when I bump into some familiar people at Tim Hortons. What am I going to do then? Are any of these things going to be reflected in my conversation with those I will meet this week who don't know and love Jesus? I would remind you of 1 Peter 3.15. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. That's for all. All right, that's a few thoughts about method. I've probably stirred more questions than I've given answers, but at the very least, we want to see some of what Paul's doing and ask ourselves, how, does that, how should that be reflected in my own witness today? Secondly, the message. In chapter 17, back in chapter 17, Acts 2, He gives it in two parts. I'm going, to, I'm going to condense this a little bit because you've had the gospel details given to you already throughout the service in terms of who Jesus is, his, the necessity of his sinless life, death, resurrection. So we have those details in place. So let me just sum this up. You can break his presentation down into two parts. One, he is proving from s- Scripture and from 
apostolic witness, that the Messiah must suffer, die, and rise from the dead. Primarily Old Testament proof saying this was the plan all along. The Messiah, the one who would come to rescue God's people from their enemies, not the Romans, but the sin within, that Messiah must suffer and die. That was the plan from the beginning. And secondly, he says, this Jesus I declare to you, I proclaim to you, he's that guy. He's that Messiah. And it's interesting, if you go back and read Peter's message, um, even Stephen to some extent in his presentation, uh, his Act 7 that leads to his death, uh, certainly Peter, you could break his message down in the same way. What he's saying to the people then is, The Messiah, from the very beginning, God's plan to rescue not just the Jewish people, but all of humanity, all of his people from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation. Those he would save, how would he save them? Well, he'll provide them enough resources to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and and find their way into a better spiritual life and journey and make their way up the mountaintop and find God somewhere at the top or something like that. No, that's not it, is it? No, this God would come down to us. Remember a pastor describing, he was having a conversation, I think it was a, a Buddhist and a, and a Muslim person, and they were talking about picturing all the world religions trying to find their way up to God. And it was David Platt I was listening to, and, and David said, he stopped them at one point, he said, well, what if the God you're trying to find by working your way up to the top, what if he actually came down to you? And they froze. Well, that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing, and that's exactly God's plan from the beginning, not that we would find our way back to Him, but He would in mercy and in grace we will never fully understand, He would come for us. The Messiah must suffer and die. That means the Messiah must become incarnate, by the way, and suffer and die and then rise again to secure salvation for sinners like us. And the one who is the Messiah, he says, it's Jesus. It's worthwhile going through Acts at this point and just pulling out some of the passages that the apostles use, Acts 16, 8 to 11, Isaiah 53, that's in Acts 8, 35 where uh, Philip uses that, Paul in Acts 13, verses 16 to 41. You see there how they use the Old Testament Scripture. For our purposes this morning, I just want you to have rooted deeply in your mind and your heart this truth that God's plan didn't shift somewhere along the way. He didn't have a plan A, and Israel derailed that through disobedience. And now, No, Paul wants to insist to his hearers, this was the plan from the beginning. This is their only hope. Those Jewish people who thought they were good enough, for, for, they were good with God because they were Jewish. They were not right with God. They needed a Messiah who would die in their place to bear away the guilt of their sin and rise on their behalf that they might have life with Him forever. And so it is with us. We cannot save ourselves, our heritage, our relationships, human that is. None of those things can earn our standing. What we need is what they need, and that is a Messiah who comes for us, and He has. I would encourage you at this moment to be careful There are some in our day who would recommend that we unhitch Christianity from the Old Testament. Disconnect. The the Old Testament is filled with wrath and and, uh, so many ugly things that are hard to explain. When God tells the people of Israel to go in and slaughter everybody, that's hard to explain to our, our, you know, 
gracious, gentle, loving culture that we live in. That's, that's hard for them to accept. So we just need to put distance between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Paul's example here says that would be a fatal error, a fatal error, and would actually destroy, undermine the truth and power of the gospel itself. The gospel of the Messiah who has arrived to rescue us, it, it begins in Genesis 1, it finds its first light in Genesis 3.15. There's somebody coming to rescue, and then that plan is being worked out throughout the Old Testament. You don't really, really, really get what it is for Jesus to come unless you have some idea of what happened before. The significance of the Old Testament story to our Christian witness today. But my last thought on the message is this, and I've skipped over a lot, but hopefully I'm giving you enough to think about what it is you're communicating in your witness I just want you to understand that this message, the Messiah has to suffer and die and rise again, and Jesus is that Messiah, that this message, this gospel truth is bound up with the mission Paul has been given. It is bound up with their commission to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. They are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They will, they will be failures in that if they look anywhere else, if they are distracted in any way from this message. This message is their mission, and their me mission is this message, this gospel message. And they are laser-focused in the book of Acts. This is what I found most helpful for me as a pastor as we've been studying through this. When we think about all the things around us, all of the important issues and needs that we need to think carefully about and respond to, I'm not suggesting that Christians shouldn't thoughtfully and vocally respond to current events and current issues, social issues, social justice issues, uh, abortion and modern-day slavery, all of those things. This is our day. This is the world we live in. We should be having thoughtful responses to those things. But our responses to those things are not at the heart of our mission for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can quite frankly get in trouble for saying that in some Christian circles today. I am convinced that if we want to see our culture, our families, our neighbors, our communities transformed, if we want to see the shifts that have been so massive and so swift in our culture, if we want to see those things reversed, we need to be faithful to this message. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit penetrating hearts, transforming lives, transforming homes, transforming entire communities. Wouldn't that be an amazing revival? To see in this community, in Port Perry, wherever it is we are, to see God change. We've, we've, got, a, we've got a casino up the road and, you know, whatever. I've got some friends who like going there for breakfast because it's cheap. I, you know, okay. <laughs> Underneath it all, I've got, I've got real issues with, you know, funding children's hospitals with gambling proceeds. Like, I just got issues. with. I, I just don't think it's a healthy thing for our community. How do we in Port Perry shut down the casino? I tell our people, I say, you need to share the gospel with your neighbors tomorrow. That's how we're going to shut down a casino. It's going to be the gospel going from one life to another life and God blessing that gospel and rescuing that soul and reviving soul after soul after soul and then a community will be changed. So the importance of the message and being clear on the message. Uh, that's, I think, a good example to follow from Paul. And the last thing I want to reflect with you on is the impact, both his method and his message, what happens here in Thessalonica. Very quickly, the trailing verses of our passage, we see, first of all, that some are persuaded. 
some Jews. The way it's written, it would imply that only not a lot of Jews believed, but more God-fearing Greeks, Gentiles, who were sympathetic at the very least, if not full converts to Judaism, they begin to receive the gospel message, and they believe. And the church is born. Praise the Lord. Paul, who has been so earnest and so precise and so thorough in his communication ministry of the Gospels, it's effective, right? He's brilliant. Look at all the people he saved. They were, it says in the text, they were persuaded, right? I think it says that. Verse 4, yeah, some of the Jews were persuaded. Paul persuaded them. Well, on one hand, I want to say, yes, that is what it means. Paul's testimony was used to persuade them. But we need to be really careful what's going on here, and it's crucial to our ongoing uh, encouragement in Christian witness. Already in Acts, we know that when people are saved and churches are birthed, it's the act of the triune God. By the power of the Spirit of God, through the redemptive work of the Son of God, according to the authority of God the Father, sinners are saved. Let me read a few quotes. Acts 2.47, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Acts 13.48, when the Gentiles heard this, that is the gospel, they were glad and honored the, the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Acts 14.27, the apostles gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now that beautiful picture of Lydia in Acts 16, verse 14. It's Paul's communicating the gospel to her there by the river outside of Philippi, and it just says the Lord opened her heart. Just did some first open heart surgery there by the river. And Lydia is saved. Even Paul himself, let me read a couple words of commentary from Paul on what he sees happening when these people are persuaded by his faithful testimony. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 and 5. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. They responded to the gospel. They responded to Paul's message. Those who believed, they were drawn irresistibly, to bow the knee and repent and trust in Christ as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the Savior. And all of that is a reflection of what's something that God had done beforehand. We know that you were chosen because of how you responded to our message. Or we can reverse that. Why did they respond to our message? Well, because God chose them. You can work the verse in both directions. What I mean to say is Paul is reminding us here, as the book of Acts does everywhere, we have hope, we have confidence, we have really spirit-born assurance that our witness will be useful because God says, I will make it useful. Not because we're as smart as Paul or as articulate as Paul. Paul elsewhere in 1 Corinthians says he's not even that articulate. He preaches the gospel out of weakness. Why? so that God might demonstrate His power. And that's how God always works. Are you a believer here this morning? Somebody shared the gospel with you at one point in your life? Maybe many points in your lives? 
some point, I don't know your story, but at some point, things that didn't make sense began to make sense. At some point, things that you saw, you couldn't see, you began to see. At one point, some point, for some of you, things that made you horribly angry began to become incredibly precious. What's going on? Well, that's an activity of the Spirit of God that is anointing the message of God, spoken by the servant of God, and all of that for the glory of God. What I wanted you to understand as you think about how to go about witnessing and what it is we say in our witness is that underneath, even in the book of Acts, underneath all of the message and all of the method, within the narrative itself in Acts is the reality of God's presence and purpose and power. It's the divine activity of the Holy Spirit anointing the gospel and bringing it to life in the hearts of the lost. That is our only hope. It has always been the case and always will be the case. But because he does, because he does this, he does this. You understand? He does this. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's making a promise. Jesus commissions the disciples, and we pick up that commission at the end of Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and lo, I am with you always. And in between, he gives us our job description. Now go into all the world and make the disciples. Preach the gospel, baptize, see churches planted. Why? Because Jesus has all authority, and he is on our side. He's with us. More accurately, we're on his side. I don't want Jesus on my side. I want to be on his side. And he is building his church. It's the divine activity, the heart surgery that produces the change both in the individual and from one individual to the next individual, and then you see a church being born in Philippi and Thessalonica in Berea and on and on and on. I just have a story to tell you just to encourage you, and this is just one story. I wish I had a thousand more, but a friend of mine I've known for 20 years, and he's got some physical issues and some emotional issues. We've known him for a long time, got connected with our church. And I, w- I witnessed to him for years uh, on my front porch in the church at his house in Tim Hortons, shared the gospel with him. I don't even know how many times. And then after about oh, 10 or 12 years, he moved from, he was living with his dad. He moved down with his mom. He's, he was in his 30s then. And uh, we kind of lost connect. We would stay in touch, but not really. And I would, he, I would talk to him about the gospel, and I would ask him his response to the gospel. And it would get to the point where you have to actually put your life in Jesus' hands, and it, he would, it was a, like a huge roadblock. And I never saw him come to faith in Christ until years later he started calling me. And we would chat. And he would talk about life and very excited about me and the people he knows at our church. And uh, we had these interesting conversations. And I started to get the sense that I think he wants to tell me something. And he started talking about PSWs. Again, he's got physical needs. And PSWs who would come in. And every PSW he had coming in to take care of him, it was a Christian. One of them actually, after she was finished her work, her assignment with him, said, If you want to read the Bible, I will call you every day and I will read the Bible with you over the phone. Just a faithful light to this guy. So all of these little bits of gospel light coming into his life. And he didn't know how to explain it. He didn't know. He didn't have the right lingo. It was all, it took like five phone calls for it. And I said, Brian, are you trying to tell me you're a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. 
I mean, you really love Jesus. I really love Jesus. And then we would have conversations. He still brings up today when we talk on the phone. He'll say, do you remember all those years you were telling me about Jesus and I didn't want anything to do with it? And I, got, I had the joy of baptizing him last summer. And he's got MS. He's very weak. So it took two of us to put him in. We had a blow-up pool. It was great. We were outside. Two of us putting this guy under the water. I thought we were going to drown him. He didn't care. We were going under and up. Oh, it was a beautiful moment. And we have great fellowship on the phone. And now... So what made the difference? Those PSWs were a lot better witnesses than I was. <laughs> Probably that's true. But that's not what made the difference. What made the difference is, a, is an ignition by the Spirit in the mind and the heart, the new birth. And he's transformed. And now, my dad's been down to visit him uh, with me. He, he's in a nursing care facility in Oshawa. He, he talks to people about Jesus all the time. All the time. And his witness and testimony, he, he has what I would describe as a Sunday school level understanding of the gospel. It's very basic. It's right on, and it's genuine like you wouldn't believe. And his roommate or other people, he's meeting Christians all the time, having fellowship with believers. It's unbelievable how that guy, I didn't think, I didn't think he'd ever get saved. How the Lord not only saved him, but now he's a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ in the nursing home where God has placed him. The method and the message anointed by the Spirit of God bring about the transformation we long for in those around us. There's one last. I'm not, I'm not going to. I've taken too much of your time. Um, you'll see that there are some who are not persuaded, and suddenly ministry gets hard again for the Apostle Paul in Thessalonica. And isn't that odd? When you're faithful and you're doing what God's called you to do, shouldn't, shouldn't it get easier, Paul? Shouldn't, it, shouldn't pastoral ministry, we're in our mid-50s, should it not be easier now? The Christian walk? Shouldn't I struggle less with sin now? Shouldn't, if we're being faithful as a church, shouldn't our community love us for it? Well, in God's mercy, we trust that many of them will love us for our faithful witness, but some of them will hate us intensely. And that doesn't mean we're being unfaithful. In fact, sometimes that's the thing that shows faithfulness in its full light. Paul faces opposition, but it is not a matter of failure in his witness. It is a matter of the sovereignty of God being worked out in the... In the the message and the method, how we get the message to the people. He works how it is people will respond. He works out and applies his, that gospel, and he builds his church, and he even uses the most difficult moments to open the most glorious opportunities for gospel ministry. I'll just leave that thought with you as I close. Think about your witness. We take up the gospel torch, so to speak, from those who come before us. By our very nature as those who've been redeemed through faith in Christ, we are his witnesses to a lost world. Declaring this message, wherever we are, whoever we're with, prepared for and ready to persevere through whatever resistance or opposition, but faithfully declaring the truth of the gospel, trusting in his promise, that he has other sheep, and they will hear his voice, and they will follow him too. So that one day we will stand together, this body of believers and the believers of Port Perry and my friend Brian, 
and people we don't even know yet, we will stand together around the throne and we will sing together, all worthy is the Lamb. I wonder what it would be like this week if the Lord, if we were to pray, I'm praying this more often for myself and as a church family, Lord, give us, give me, give each person here one person this week who needs to hear about Jesus. Might be somebody you know, maybe a neighbor, maybe a friend, maybe a complete stranger in Tim Hortons. But Lord, would you put each, each believer in this place, put them with one person this week who has never heard about Jesus. Give them the wisdom, the words, and the opportunity, and let your light shine. I wonder what God would do with that. I think he is very pleased with that kind of prayer, that God would use us in these days to bear the light of the gospel to the nations. Hands to the plow, we're pressing on and running hard to win the prize, empowered by the love of God with grace before and grace behind. For lo, what hope before us stands? You finish all that you began. Eternal joy is in his hands and all of our tomorrows. Amen.